Hello and welcome to The Green Canary. Today on the show, we're asking the big questions. When is climate action really just climate inaction? Yes, it's unfortunate, but it looks like we've turned the corner a little bit in the Albanese government. We're 100 days into the government now as Albanese himself is out there on social media telling everybody. But when it comes to serious climate action, how are we going 100 days into this government? We are going to answer that question in the context of the new oil and gas exploration uh, sites that were named by Resources Minister Madeleine King last week. Now, still with the government, we're also going to talk about something else they announced last week. That is their new biodiversity certificates. Now, we're going to tell you what a biodiversity certificate is. We're going to discuss whether these certificates will work. Are they the equivalent of, you know, the second prize in a beauty contest card in Monopoly? As in, yeah, not really a thing that anyone wants. Or could they actually make a difference with Australia's declining biodiversity? Also this week, spring is almost upon us. Yes, spring has almost sprung. That means summer is not far off. And in this week's feature interview, we've got a really interesting insight into a part of Australia where bushfires do more environmental damage than just about anywhere else. So that's really something to look forward to. Please stick around for that. We're also going to talk this week about penguins, platypuses, plenty more. Now, I'm Ant Sharwood, as I always am. And guess what? Remember how my regular co-host Elfie Scott was back from Europe this week or supposed to be back from Europe this week. Well, I'm sorry, but she's been delayed. Bit of a problem. Her partner got COVID. She's stuck in Singapore. But I promise all things going well that Elfie will be here next week. And look, there's a bonus. There's an upside to everything. I'm actually in the Australian high country uh, this week. I'm up at the beautiful snowfields of Mount Hotham in Victoria, where uh, it's not actually snowy, it's raining here today. That's a bit of a four-letter word uh, for snow-loving locals is is rain. So uh, very quietly it is doing that, but it's still lovely up here. I can see snow gums out the window. I can see snow, of course. Plenty still hasn't been washed away. In any season, this is one of the most beautiful parts of Australia. So we're better uh, to deliver our weekly rundown of all your important green news stories than the Australian Alps. One thing I did forget to bring up here, I'm afraid everybody, was my microphone. So if I'm a little echoey, 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 no, that was just me. But if it's a little tinny, the sound, please bear with me for this week. It is just the fact that I've come somewhere really beautiful and I packed about 80% of the things that I need, but not quite all of them. So please forgive me. But let's transition into our first story. And I don't know if you can forgive Resources Minister Madeline King. There's this week's segue because... Look, last week she announced you can count them on all your fingers or if you prefer on all your toes. Thankfully, not both. That would be 20. But Resources Minister Madeleine King did announce 10 new Australian offshore sites where oil and gas exploration is going to be allowed. Now, Mr King also approved uh, a couple of new offshore greenhouse gas storage areas off WA and the NT. She wants to explore the potential of carbon capture and storage technology, um, which she says is necessary to meet Australia's net zero emissions goals. Now, look, let's deal with the second one first. Let's deal with carbon capture and storage before we get to these oil and gas exploration sites. Carbon capture and storage, oh, 
you want it to work. You really do. I mean, it's like you want nuclear power to be affordable, quick to build, safe, but it's just not. You know, I want Pavlova every day for dessert, but somehow that never happens either. And I kind of think that carbon capture and storage is in the the Pavlova and the nuclear category, two things you'd never thought would be uh, in the same sentence, but there they were. Um, It's just not proven economically uh, or even logistically on an industrial scale. It's definitely not cheap, especially in relation to renewables. So look, according to every expert I've ever spoken to or read, um, carbon capture and storage is not the answer uh, to our carbon problems at, at, at this stage. So not quite with Resources Minister King there, but let's talk about the first part of the equation of her announcement uh, last week. Yep, 10 new offshore sites for oil and gas exploration, um, covering almost 50,000 square kilometres uh, off the waters of, of Victoria, WA and the Northern Territory. Now, look, not all of these are going to come to fruition. We're not going to have 10 new mega projects, uh, you know, pumping out CO2 and churning up the ocean uh, within a few years. But what this signals, the fact that these are even being mooted, uh, being, you know, the the the, pay, the the pathways is being allowed for these things. This signals in the minds of many that the road to net zero in Australia is paved with very good intentions as well as a large dollop of hypocrisy. Um, the minister went on about how the new oil and gas permits would bolster energy security uh, and aid the transition to renewables. I would have thought the best way to aid the transition to renewables is to chuck money at renewables, at battery storage, at that sort of thing, rather than at fossil fuels. Um, it, it really didn't sound like much except excuses. Uh, now, I want to read you from a couple of journalists who I thought wrote well upon this subject. Uh, one was Sophie McNeil. She's an author and journalist I admire. She actually ran this story on uh, the Human Rights Watch website. Of course, uh, our, our right to a uh, climate that's not warming to ridiculous levels is a human right. Uh, Anyway, here is what uh, author and journalist Sophie McNeil wrote. She said, the Albanese government is still trying to have it both ways. They want kudos for being climate champions, but without showing any willingness to rein in Australia's powerful fossil fuel in, uh, industry. The government denies responsibility for emissions created by the vast amounts of coal and gas Australia exports overseas as one of the world's largest fossil fuel producers and has flatly ruled out any discussion on banning new fossil fuel projects. And this week, they go and approve 10 new ocean sites for oil and gas exploration. Well said, Sophie. Uh, look, I also like this quickly from Nick O'Malley of the SMH and the Age. I think he also writes well on this subject. Uh, Nick O'Malley said, rather than exploring for new gas, Australia, Australia could ensure its energy security by selling less of our existing supply overseas. Uh, pretty simple stuff there, and I think most people would agree with him. So, look, I don't think too many people were impressed with Madeleine King this week. Um, I have to also mention that she got into some very weird territory, some, some sort of, you'd have to say, almost climate denier-type language. I'm not accusing her of being a climate denier. Indeed, Madeleine King, our new resources minister, when she was in opposition in, uh, back in 2020, she accused the then government of being climate deniers. So it would be a hell of a turnaround if she turned out to be one herself. Nevertheless, I don't think she is, but she employed climate denier-ish type 
language on ABC Radio Perth when she said, carbon dioxide is not noxious. It's the bubbles in your soda water or out of your soda stream. Woohoo! So, you know, we've got to keep it in balance how we think about carbon dioxide. Uh, yeah, important note, the minister did not actually say woohoo. That was me putting it in for emphasis. But uh, wow, I mean, just wow. I mean, you know, the American climate deniers that one of their classic lines is CO2 is, is plant food. How can it be bad for us? And I mean, you know, that's the most stupid line in history because the obvious comeback is something like, well, we all need water to live. So how can anyone drown from too much water? Uh, so, you know, there, but there, there are ways to hose these things down. But, but to hear uh, Madeline King, the resources minister, say carbon dioxide is not noxious. It's the bubbles in your soda water. Uh, terrific. Carbon dioxide is great. Is is that your point, Madeline King? I'm not sure what your point is. It's a weird point, whatever it was. And to bring it back to the start of this discussion, um, 100 days into the Albanese government, this is the sort of stuff we're getting. Um, how long is a honeymoon period with government? Uh, I think the climate honeymoon is over. I don't think the public's overall honeymoon with the Albanese government is over. Maybe it will be when cost of living and other pressures kick, kick in from inflation and other things. But on the climate front, I think the Albanese honeymoon is over. Yeah, they got the 43% legislation through the lower house, still to go through the upper house, but it appears that it'll get through. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we're not uh, necessarily, uh, the Australian public is not necessarily on board with them anymore. So interesting times. But the Albanese Labor government, let's let's move to our second story. Uh, the government did announce last week the creation of a biodiversity certificates scheme. And look, not everyone was on board with this either, but at least um, there's a good debate happening. Some people think it's a good thing, other people less so. So we promised we'd tell you what it is. Well, basically a biodiversity certificate, the whole scheme, it's, it's designed to recognise and indeed reward landholders who restore or manage local habitat. Now, now, that could be farmers, it could be conservation groups that own parcels of land, it could, of course, be Indigenous landholders uh, or land managers. Um, but the basic deal is if you set aside a parcel of land, keep the remnant vegetation, uh, the wildlife habitat, uh, you will be granted a biodiversity certificate, and that certificate can then be sold to other parties. So we're talking about a market that's going to be created here. It's, it's a biodiversity market. It'll sort of open, uh, it'll sort of operate uh, much like carbon credits. Um, and, you know, Minister uh, Prime Minister Albanese was was um, very, very much uh, talking it up. He was he was out there at the, the Bush Summit in, in Griffith, and he said, this is a chance to support farmers using their knowledge and expertise in a way that benefits us all, a chance to shape a better future. Uh, a better future, I like that. Uh, he said, as we move towards net zero, we are creating a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity not just to protect Australia's natural environment, but to kickstart a nationwide restoration. Like that even more, a nationwide restoration. Uh, Tanya, Ple uh, Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister, also kicked in with her say. She said, businesses and philanthropic organisations are looking to invest in projects to protect and restore nature. We need to make this easier. I think that's a really good point. And she also said repairing nature is good for productivity, reducing erosion, protecting topsoil and providing shelter for livestock. It's all good for business. So there are business aspects. There are, uh, you know, reason, all sorts of reasons why this, this scheme of biodiversity certificates sounds good in theory. 
Not everyone is convinced. There was actually quite the spectrum of, appear- of opinion on this one. Um, look, it was cautiously welcomed by some. The Australian Conservation Foundation said uh, the government, you know, should be careful to ensure that that the scheme genuinely benefits nature and doesn't face some of the integrity issues that have plagued the carbon credit system. I think that's very well said by the ACF. Uh, the Wilderness Society wasn't so happy. They 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 said it was an ins- inexplicable response to the crisis, um, you know, of biodiversity that was outlined in the recent State of the Environment report. Uh, I read a really scathing uh, piece actually from Polly Hemming of the Australia Institute. Uh, she basically said, "Yeah, right. So we're privatizing the Australian environment." Um, she, she, you know, the government sort of has justified this scheme, saying we can't foot the bill ourselves. It's too much. We need to create a market that 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 can do that. Uh, Polly Hemming said um, it is patently false to say the government cannot foot the bill for biodiversity and conservation when the government subsidises fossil fuels to the tune of $11 billion a year. So, look, a lot of arguments um, around this. I, th- I, th- I think it's, it's you know, the, the arguments are all fair on all sides, but it seems to me that putting a price on good bush management uh, or giving a reward for that and putting a price on bad bush management seems like a pretty sound practice in principle if it can uh, be pushed through without, uh, as the ACF warned, some of the worst excesses of, of the carbon credit system. Um, and just speaking very briefly about the Bush Summit, that's where Albanese uh, actually delivered that announcement. Um, there was a giggle or two out there on social media when uh, the former Environment Minister, Susan Lay, uh, tweeted, still no Albo at the Bush Summit here in my electorate, Griffith. Uh, yeah, and everyone on Twitter said that's because his plane has been delayed by fog. Um, and um, it was pretty funny because because she almost dobbed on elbow, uh, Susan Lay did, to, to the Daily Telegraph. She she mentioned them in her tweet uh, as if to say, hey, uh, you know, my friends at News Corp, please, uh, please have a crack at elbow over this. Um, it was just uh, indicative of the fact that uh, certain, uh, as we know, sides of politics turn to certain sections of the media to pick on certain other sides of politics. It was a pretty good example of that. But that was just a bit of fun on the side. Anyway, let's move on. Story three. Look, as flagged in the intro, uh, we're going to a special part of Australia today with our special guest. Uh, it is, of course, the high country. Uh, that is sort of a bit of the theme of the episode today. As mentioned, I'm up at Mount Hotham in Victoria. And the high country is a place we think of in terms of snow. Um, I have myself have written a couple of books uh, about the Australian high country in recent years. One of them was entitled From Snow to Ash. So I say we think of this place as a place of snow, but the book From Snow to Ash, as the title infers, tells you that this landscape is changing. This landscape, which is characterised certainly in winter by snow, uh, is burning more frequently than it ever has before. Uh, Just, for example, in Victoria here where I am, there was one mega fire in the 20th century. That was in 1939, you know, a huge fire that burnt more than about half the Alps. We've had five this century, five mega fires in 22 years, well, actually about 19 years. one in the previous century and the trees aren't up here can not cope everything is different up here and i want to introduce to you this week's guest he's a man called cam walker he's a high 
country volunteer fiery he's lots of other things he's organizing a, an event that hopefully will put forward some solutions about what to do about this landscape which is burning more often than ever before and too often so let's hear from cam walker let's roll our interview with him so as mentioned little change of pace um now spring starts this week and spring used to be a time when you would not think uh twice about fires in the Australian Alps they don't get here till not just summer but late summer well that used to be how it is but things are changing this is one of the uh, Australian environments perhaps one of the foremost ones which is directly affected by climate change and where we're seeing those effects increase year on year now as mentioned earlier the green canary podcast is being brought to you today from mount hotham up in victoria it's a little bit rainy up here actually but it's glorious up here and later this week a friend of mine cam walker is going to be running a seminar it's going to be fascinating it's going to be called climate change fire and mountain environments he will have experts up here uh from uh, parks from the academic sector from all over the place talking about what I mentioned in the intro there the changing fire regime up here in the Australian high country now Cam knows the country uh, he's the campaign campaign's coordinator sorry uh, of Friends of the Earth Melbourne but he's also a volunteer fiery up here at Mount Hotham slash Dinner Plain I hear just very quietly on the grapevine. He's a bit of a killer skier too. He runs a lovely thing called the Mountain Journal. Cam Walker, you are a mountain man. Thank you for coming on the Green Canary. What are you up to this week? Uh, this week, I'm heading back up the hill, actually, and I think we'll just cross paths. I'll be heading up Mount Hotham the day that you leave uh, and back up for a couple of weeks. Right. And tell me about this, this uh, seminar, Climate Change, Fire and Mountain Environments. I mean, tell me really about the substance of the seminar. You are a fiery up here, as I mentioned. I want you to, to, to give me some sort of anecdotal, give the, the listeners some anecdotal uh, ideas, if you like, about the changing fire regime up here. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time across the mountains and anyone who does spend time in mountain environments will have driven up out of the valleys, you know, um, out of Mount Beauty, out of Harrietville and gone through mile after mile of dead grey timber. That's the alpine ash, which has been really negatively impacted by more frequent fire cycles. And as you go higher, including in the main range, including across the Bogong High Plains, and especially in places like the Dargo High Plains, we're finding that the snow gums are now basically experiencing localised ecological collapse. They don't mind a fire, but they don't like frequent fire. And so we're seeing areas that might have been burnt once every 40 or 70 years now being burnt several times in a decade. And what happens is the trees regrow, then they get hit by another fire and basically the seed stock and the parent trees become exhausted and locally these ecosystems are starting to collapse. Which is a tragedy because there's nothing more magnificent in the world than a snow gum or indeed the alpine ash, which glow, grow at slightly lower elevations in the mountains. Um, and people need to understand that, don't they, Cam, that these trees are not like the lower altitude gum trees. We've all driven or walked or passed through landscapes that were fire affected. And three months later, the, 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 even the trunks are covered in, in what are called epicormic shoots, aren't they, where, where they're just turning green again very quickly. And you can see that that forest will recover. 
but our snow gums and our alpine ash are different, aren't they? Yes, they are. So the alpine ash in particular, if you get a fierce fire through an area, um, they only regrow through seed and the, the trees that come up, the, the seeds are tiny, they don't stay in the soil for very long and the trees need a minimum of 15 years between severe fire before that new generation can throw seed. And what we're finding is you're getting repeat fires in five years or seven years, and that's killing off the young seedlings and leading to ecological collapse. And the situation in Victoria is so bad, there's actually a state government seeding program where they pay people to collect seed from the trees, and then it's sown in the burnt areas by helicopter. Uh, it's the same story with snow gums. They can regrow from seed. Parent trees can survive through epicormic sprouting uh, or from the lignotuber on the tree. So they are fire resilient. They just can't cope with repeat fires. And one example I can think of is on the Dargo High Plains, which is quite close to Mount Hotham. There's areas there that have been burnt three times in 20 years and the forests have basically disappeared. It's now just grass and shrubs and the parent trees are gone and the landscape looks profoundly different. Uh, that's that's a, a somewhat bleak uh, story there. Um, this is not a children's book. Perhaps there is no happy ending, but uh, before we let you go today, Cam, can you give us any, uh, apart from the seeding programs, any sort of glimmer of hope? Yeah, well, now I think we are aware of the scale of the problem and the key message and the message from Phil Zilstra, who, who will be speaking at the seminar on Friday, who works at Curtin University, is we need to exclude fire from the snow gum woodlands while they recover from fire. So there is a way out of this, but it requires intent on our part. Um, it requires extra resources, both on the ground and in the air. And it, in, it means we need to have the capacity to defend these areas in really bad seasons like 2019-20, where uh, the fire crews were so stretched, basically they were often pulled out of the mountains and put onto protecting human assets. So we can help these forests to recover. We don't need to do anything except exclude fire for 30 or 40 years, but it will require additional resourcing and the commitment to look after these zones, even in really bad years when there's very big demands on all firefighting capacity. Well, that is very well said. Thank you for that, Cam. And uh, I wish you well with the seminar, Climate Change, Fire and Mountain Environments. It's happening on Friday, and I think it's going to be Zoomable or loginable somehow. Um, we are going to tell you about that in the Green Canary newsletter this week. So if you're not a subscriber, you know what to do. Uh, hello at thegreencanary.co. And we'll make sure we let you know if you're interested in this issue, how you can log into this seminar, which happens this Friday. But for now, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth and also a volunteer, uh, high country fiery. And thank you for your service on that front. You do amazing. And I know at times often very frightening, even life-threatening work. Thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the Green Canary podcast today. Thanks, Ant. Good to have a chat. All the best. That is such an interesting topic to me. It's such a tragic topic, but um, it's it's always good to hear from Cam Walker. He he, um, it's lovely to hear from anybody like that who who works in the uh, environmental NGO sector, but gets up here, holds a hose, and you all know what I'm referring to when I say that. Now, let's move on to mulch. Our little clippings at the end of the pod. Just a couple of things that came into my inbox this week. One, I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled to see. Uh, Penguins. Now, back in early February on the Green Canary pod, um, 
we told you about a new $3.3 million Penguin Discovery Center that they were going to build off the coast of Rockingham, uh, Rockingham just south of Perth, on the aptly named Penguin Island. Uh, we Australians are so terrific at naming things. Now, the environment uh, movement was was up in arms about that. They did not want it. And I'm very pleased to tell you that the plans have been scuppered. Uh, the WA government announced on Friday that uh, the planned new discovery centre on Penguin Island will not proceed. They're going to throw some money to, to see if they can re relocate the project on the mainland. That seems to me a sensible idea. Have the education centre on the mainland. Let the penguins penguin over on the island. Um, and, you know, that press release came from the Honourable Reese Whitby, and uh, he's the WA Minister for Environment and Climate Action. I love that. Normally, they're the Minister for Climate Change. That's what Chris Bowen is, Energy and Climate Change. But Reese Whitby over in WA, he's the Minister for Environment and Climate Action, which just infers that he is a man of action. He's clearly not just a man of climate action. He's a man of penguin action too. Add that to your title, Reese Whitby, Minister for Penguin Action and for scuppering uh, ill-advised penguin uh, discovery centres on an island uh, that the penguins live on and that they really didn't need a penguin discovery centre on because they've just had a bad breeding season and they don't need any intrusion whatsoever from people, say, all the environment experts. So that is a good news and a follow-up to uh, a piece that ran on our, uh, around Valentine's Day, sort of a mid-February uh, podcast that we did then. And look, uh, speaking about uh, Australian uh, animals, starting with P, yes, we did say we'd talk about platypuses. And I was just hanging out on the uh, Australian Conservation Foundation site, as you do. I mentioned them earlier um, in regard to the biodiversity certificates. Um, look what I found there. I found that... Uh, September is the month of their platy project. Yes, during September, if you see a platypus, oh, pretty much anywhere, here's what you've got to do. Tell the ACF. Go to their uh, website. I think they're acf.org.au. Uh, find the platy project page and tell them where you've seen a platypus. That will help uh, them gather information because, you know, with all of these these creatures, the more we know where they are, what they're doing, what their habits are, there is nothing like citizen science to uh, enhance everybody's uh, knowledge on that sort of thing. So just go to acf.org.au and participate in the Platy Project. What a great way to start spring. And look, that'll do this week. Um, thank you very much to, for, for listening. Uh, for, uh, to our podcast up in the high country. Now, I believe we are on the land of the Yatemathang people. I think there are a few Aboriginal nations around here. So please excuse me if I haven't got them all, but I do know that the Yatemathang people do claim uh, this, uh, one of the claimants to, to this land originally. So we pay respect to them, um, to, to, to the elders past, present and emerging. And of course, we acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. And as ever, I just want to point you to the Green Canary newsletter. That would be uh, hello at thegreencanary.co. Uh, send that magical email and bang, you'll get Australia's most engaging and fun and chirpiest environmental newsletter in your inbox on a Wednesday. Um, of course, you can uh, follow us and talk to us on Twitter at Green Canary Pod. And we are at Green Canary Media on Instagram. And that'll just about do it for today. I'm going to go for a lovely afternoon walk in some sloshy rain and some even sloshier snow which has been made that way by the rain 
It makes the snow gum uh, bark sort of turn red and vivid green, some terrific colours. I might take some photos and chuck them out on our socials later today or tomorrow. But thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week with Elfie. Bye.